Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. There were no oral arguments at the Supreme Court this week. The justices will be back on March 18th for more oral arguments. So instead, this week, we're going to focus on a case that could be at the Supreme Court next term involving a challenge to a Louisiana abortion law. Critics of the law say that if the law is allowed to go into effect, it could leave only one doctor performing abortions in the whole state. In early February, the Supreme Court blocked the state of Louisiana from enforcing the law temporarily. It was the first real test on abortion to come to the court since Justice Anthony Kennedy retired last year, so many people were watching the case closely. Chief Justice John Roberts joined the court's four more liberal justices in putting the law on hold. And the court's newest member, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who replaced Kennedy, dissented from the ruling. Joining me to unpack the Louisiana case and what it might mean for the court going forward is Tom Goldstein, the publisher and co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. Tom, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to join the new podcast. Let's start with the Louisiana law, which was passed in 2014 but has never gone into effect. The law requires doctors who perform abortions in Louisiana to have the right to admit patients at a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic where they work. What was the legislature's rationale for this law? The Louisiana legislature said that it wanted to have this law in place in order to ensure that the abortion providers were credentialed and reliable medical service providers. And so the challengers went to court. They argued that this law was unconstitutional. And at least from the challengers' perspective, the courts were not writing on a blank slate when they considered this challenge to the constitutionality of the what we call the admitted privileges requirement. In 2016, the Supreme Court struck down a Texas law with a similar admitting privileges requirement. We're going to actually hear a little snippet from Justice Stephen Breyer, who wrote the majority's opinion describing the Texas law. We here consider the constitutionality of two statutory provisions of Texas law, both of which regulate facilities where abortions are performed. The first provision concerns hospital admitting privileges. Before that provision was enacted, Texas law required an abortion facility to maintain a written protocol for managing, among other things, the transfer of patients requiring emergency care to a hospital. The law before us adds a requirement that a doctor performing or inducing an abortion have active admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the facility where the abortion is performed. Tom, what's the standard that the court uses to decide whether a law regulating abortion is unconstitutional? For the past 10 or 15 or 20 years, the Supreme Court has applied a rule called the undue burden standard. And that's obviously got two parts. Is there a burden? And what is it on the woman's uh, ability to get access to an abortion? And is it undue, which asks you to take a look at what the state's interests are in imposing the restriction? Here's Justice Breyer again explaining the reasoning for the Supreme Court's decision that the Texas law was unconstitutional. The purpose of the requirement is to help ensure that women have easy access to a hospital should complications arise during an abortion procedure. But the district court described abortion procedures in Texas as already extremely safe, and it found that when compared with prior law, which you will remember already insisted upon a written protocol for transferring patients to a hospital in case of need, 
In comparison to prior law, the Court said, the admitting privileges requirement brought about no health benefits. At the same time, the district court found that as of and soon after the time, Texas began to enforce the new requirement. The number of facilities providing abortions in Texas dropped from about 40 to about 20. The record contains sufficient evidence of a causal connection between the new law and those closures. The closures mean fewer doctors, longer waiting times, increased crowding, and significantly greater travel distances, all of which, when taken together, burden a woman's right to choose. In sum, the admitting privileges requirement places a burden upon a woman's right, which, given the lack of health benefit, is undue. So what did the lower courts decide about the Louisiana law? Well, the lower courts went back and forth. The trial judge, hearing the challenge to the case, struck down the Louisiana law, saying it's basically the twin of the Texas law that the Supreme Court had struck down. Then Louisiana appealed, and it went to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and it upheld the law, and it said that the, te- the Texas and Louisiana laws were different because of the record behind them. Not that they were structurally that very different, but that Louisiana had put in better proof about how it was that its law would do something important and wouldn't burden women unduly. So then the challengers at the end of January came to the Supreme Court, and what exactly were they asking the justices to do at that point? Well, at that point, they were trying to stop the law from going into effect because it hadn't done so in light of the district court's ruling. And they said, we want the law put on hold until we can come and ask you, the Supreme Court, to actually hear the case. The technical term for what the challengers were looking for is a stay. And what kind of criteria are the justices looking at when they decide whether to grant a stay? Well, a stay is a kind of equitable relief, and the justices look at several things. The first is, are they likely to step in and hear the case? Would four justices uh, most likely agree later on down the road to hear it? The second thing is, well, are they likely to reverse the lower court's decision? They don't want to put a decision on hold if they're ultimately just going to be likely to uphold it anyway. And also, would people be injured in the interim if they don't step in? So the challenger's argument for putting the law on hold was that if the law were to go into effect, there'd only be one doctor in the whole state of Louisiana performing abortions in the early stages of pregnancy. There wouldn't be any doctors performing abortions after 17 weeks of pregnancy. They also said that the Supreme Court needed to step in now because if the law went into effect, even if the law were struck down later, there would be sort of an empty victory because any clinics that closed while the law was being enforced probably wouldn't ever reopen later. The state, on the other hand, told the justices that the effect of the law wouldn't be anywhere near as draconian, uh, as the challengers were arguing that even if the law went into effect, it didn't plan to shut down abortion clinics immediately. So so what happened in the end? What did the, what did the justices do? Well, the challengers prevailed. They got five members of the Supreme Court to agree to put the Louisiana law on hold until they could come to the Supreme Court with a petition for certiorari asking the justices to hear the case. So they needed five votes to get this stay, to put the law on hold. So who were those five justices? Well, it was a real question whether they could get them because while five members of the court had struck down the Texas law, Justice Kennedy had been one of them and he was now gone. So they needed to pick up either one of the previous dissenters, like the Chief Justice or the new member of the court, Justice Kavanaugh, and they got the Chief Justice. So they got five votes for putting the law on hold. 
So he was, as you said, one of the dissenters in the Texas case three years ago. So what does it tell us that he was a dissenter in the Texas case three years ago, but then he joined the former liberal justices to at least put the law on hold? Well, it suggests that he is going to say that the Louisiana law is the twin of the Texas law and therefore is just as unconstitutional. It's not a promise by him to do that. He's just you know, making a prediction about what would happen in giving them the fifth vote. But it would be pretty consistent with what we've seen from the chief justice in that he's taking a kind of institutional view that it, the Supreme Court's not going to depart from its precedent, particularly its recent precedent, even if he, as an initial matter, thought that precedent was wrongly decided. So even if he would not have decided the Texas case the same way, and he dissented, he would adhere to it when it came to the Louisiana statute. But the state still has its opportunity. First, there's the question whether the Supreme Court will hear the case at all. It's not guaranteed to, though it's extremely likely given this day. And then they can try and persuade John Roberts to either overturn the Texas case or that the Louisiana statute because of the record the state put forward, is different enough. Let's talk a little bit about Justice Kavanaugh's dissent. He was the only person to write a dissent from the Supreme Court's order. He replaced Justice Kennedy, who, as you said, had been the fifth vote in the Texas case. Abortion was a hot topic at his confirmation hearing. Before he came to the Supreme Court, he was a judge on the Court of Appeals. He heard the case of an undocumented pregnant teenager who'd been in federal immigration custody and wanted to get an abortion. A federal district court in Washington ruled for the teenager, who was known as Jane Doe, and ordered the government to allow her to go to an abortion clinic. The government went to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which is where Brett Kavanaugh was a judge at the time, asked the Court of Appeals to put the district court's order on hold while it appealed. Then Judge Kavanaugh and Judge Karen LaCraft Henderson granted the government's request. They gave the government 11 days to find a sponsor for the teenager to whom she could be released and then decide whether to get the abortion. So then the teenager went to the full D.C. Circuit, which cleared the way for her to get an abortion. Justice then-Judge Kavanaugh dissented from that order. He wrote that it would not be an undue burden for the government to require Jane Doe to get a sponsor before she has an abortion, as long as she finds a sponsor by the time she's 16 or 17 weeks pregnant. At his confirmation hearing, Kavanaugh faced questions about that ruling and about the Supreme Court's 1973 decision in Roe versus Wade, which was the, the ruling establishing that a woman has a constitutional right to terminate her pregnancy. Here's Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat from California, and Kavanaugh's response. The question comes, and you have said today, uh, not today, but in, it, it's been reported that you have said that Roe is now settled law. The first question I have of you is, what do you mean by settled law? I tried to ask earlier, do you believe it is correct law? Um, have your views on whether Roe is settled precedent or could be overturned? And, and has your views changed since you were in the Bush White House? Senator, I um, said that it's settled as a precedent of the Supreme Court entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. And one of the important things to keep in mind about Roe v. Wade is that it has been reaffirmed many times over the past uh, 45 years, as you know. 
What did Justice Kavanaugh say in his dissent in, in the Louisiana case, and what do you make of it? Well, Justice Kavanaugh tried to chart a middle ground. He wanted to know more facts about exactly what would happen with respect to the Louisiana statute. The state had come to the Supreme Court and said, look, uh, the reason that our statute is different from Texas's is that here you didn't have the uh, providers trying to get uh, admitting privileges, and here we don't have as much of a burden because there will be providers available. And Justice Kavanaugh said, well, before I'm going to put that law on hold, there needs to be a more full record that demonstrates the burdens created by the statute and that there are no benefits that are sufficient to the state. Uh, And so he would have kind of kicked the can down the road a little bit on the ultimate question of the statute's constitutionality. He just didn't think that there was enough of a record so far to to stay it. So does that tell us anything about how he would rule if the Supreme Court grants the petition for certiorari and rules on the merits? I think he's likely to say that so far the challengers haven't proved that the effect of the Louisiana statute is the same as the Texas statute. As we heard in that excerpt from Justice Breyer, the court did look pretty closely at the record, the evidence that was put forward in that case. And so far, Justice Kavanaugh has indicated that he doesn't think that there are twins, but he wouldn't uh, foreclose the idea that challengers could come forward and show that the statute or a statute like the Louisiana one did create an undue burden. So at this point, we're just waiting for the petition for review, which presumably will be filed by the end of April? That's right. And at that point, the state will have the opportunity to give its reasons why the Supreme Court shouldn't step in and should let the law go into effect, which would happen. The stay would expire if the Supreme Court doesn't grant review. Uh, But given the stay, it's very likely the justices are going to hear the case. And so in their new term in the fall of 2019, more likely the beginning of 2020, the justices would hear the challenge, and that will really focus the country's attention back on the Supreme Court, given what a hot-button issue abortion is. And when would we expect, if the Supreme Court were to grant review, which is not a certainty, a ruling in that case? I think you would really expect a decision in May or June of 2020. So once they hear it, they'll act pretty quickly. But we're still a year away. But that would be right in the middle of the presidential campaign. It would, and uh, times. It, yeah, no doubt <laughs> it would uh, bring the Supreme Court front and center into people's thinking about who to vote for president. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Andrew Hamm, Edith Roberts, and John Levitan.